His and Hers Horror features two adults discussing horror movies, serial killers, and other spooky content that may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. listening to his and hers horror my name is tia and i'm david david how do you feel about like mutations Mm, like genetic mutations yeah um well they could be positive uh adapting evolving they could also go awry especially when uh i don't know creatures like humans get involved and fiddle with things mess stuff up well look Let's make sharks smarter. Yeah, and give them (laughs) a backside of an octopus. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. So we're doing our first ever Creature Features episode. I know we've talked about like killer animals and stuff before, but I feel like Creature Features is a little more focused. Does that make any kind of weird sense? I thought we did Creature Features. It's been a while then. Yeah. Well, but what we did was talk about like a ton of obscure creature features. Yeah, that was like, back in season one when we didn't know what we were doing. Like Night of the Lepus and... Yeah, again, like yeah. I said, that was back in season one when we didn't really know what we were doing. <laughs> I would argue we still don't always know what we're doing. Do we ever? But like, there's a format now. Yeah, uh, there's a little more structure. Yeah. So today we're talking about creature features regarding mutated beings. Yeah. Uh, the whole concept started out, what, around the 50s? Talking, you know, looking at... Yeah, like nuclear stuff, giant bugs, like them, and mm-hmm. you already mentioned Night of the Lepus, which I think was also some sort of radiation-based thing. I don't know. We haven't watched it yet. We should. We should. We should just watch a bunch of really awesome old creature features, but we're not talking about those today. No, we are not. I somehow managed to pick two films from the same year again. You're I don't really, know. <laughs> you're really good at that. I don't know how I keep doing it, but I'll pick because I'm not looking at the the year. I I'm like, okay, this is the concept that we're gonna do, mm-hmm. and then I look at films that can be part of that concept, and then later after I picked the films, I go to look at what year they came out, and I'm like, oh, these both came out in the same year. That's weird. Yeah. I don't know. So let's get into it. Let's talk about our first film. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1997's The Relic. Oh, great year. 1997 was a good year? Oh, yeah. It's a fantastic year. I don't... I was 12, so I don't know. I was 17, graduated high school. That's right. You graduated early. Yeah. So, The Relic. After receiving a shipment of materials from South America, a Chicago museum becomes the scene for a gruesome set of murders. Can a homicide detective and a biologist find the killer before it's too late? Mm, Yeah. Directed by Peter Himes, screenplay by Amy Holden, Jones, Rick Jaffa, and Amanda Silver, based on a book by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child. Cool. The cast, Penelope Ann Miller is Margot Green. She was Gail in Carlito's Way. She was also Doris in The Artist. Okay. Tom Sizemore is Lieutenant Vincent D'Agosta. He plays either cops or military. Yeah, I believe he was in the Sniper franchise, wasn't he? Uh, I don't remember. He was uh, Sergeant Horvath in Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. I know he was also in Black Hawk Down. Yeah. Uh, Linda Hunt is Anne Cuthbert. She was Hetty Lang on NCIS LA. James Whitmore is Albert Frock. He was Brooks in The Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. And the last couple people, I don't really have anything else that they were in because they weren't in anything else big. Mm-hmm. It's mostly just like TV bit stuff. Yeah. So we have Clayton Roner as Sergeant Hollingsworth, Chi Moi Lo as Greg Lee, Thomas Ryan as Tom Parkinson, and Louis Van Bergen as John Whitney. Mm. I only have two pieces of trivia. Okay, what you got? One. So the the creature in this particular film is called uh, Kathoga. Yes, Kathoga. And it only has about four minutes of screen time, mm-hmm. which I just found interesting. I think... Was this one Stan Winston or was that the other one? Yeah, that was Stan Winston. Cool. Which is a shame then, because that means that he spent a lot of... Stan Winston typically spent a lot of time mm-hmm. and effort into his stuff. So for it to only be on the screen for four minutes is kind of sad. Yeah. Uh, so I mentioned it's based off of a book. Mm-hmm. The book actually takes place in New York. Okay. Specifically at the New York Museum of Natural History. Paramount Pictures offered the museum... A seven-figure sum. Really? To be able to film there. Yeah. And they said, hard no? 
they said no because they were worried that a monster movie would scare kids away from the museum. I mean, that's a fair point. It's a, I, I understand their reasoning. Yeah, but like, also, what? how many kids are going to watch this particular movie? A lot. Well... Maybe. Look, I don't know. So, there's only certain places in the U.S. that have museums that look similar to the museums that are built in New York. Right. Specifically, Chicago and Washington, D.C. Exactly. So, the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago... They actually loved the premise Mm -hmm. and were like, yeah, you could totally shoot here. So that's how it ends up taking place in Chicago instead of New York. Cool. Which also means they have to figure out a way for that huge boat to be where it is. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, I think they worked it out. They made it reasonable. Yeah. Uh, So let's get into the film. Okay. So we get this cold open where there's this guy, John Whitney, Mm -hmm. who is an anthropologist. Yes. One of the things I believe that they say he looks at is like tribal cultures and their their superstitions and their religious beliefs and things like that. And mythos. and Yeah. yeah. Right. So he is with this tribe in South America and they're doing some sort of a ritual. And they just kind of hand him this bowl mm-hmm. of something. And he asks zero questions and just drinks it, which like... I don't care where you are and what your job is or whatever. Don't just drink some random shit that someone gives you. Maybe it's just me because I'm a woman. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't drink anything that I don't know what's in it. No, sir. That's for washing your fingers for the next course. Oh, what? A little bowl with some little towels and little little finger bowl to wash your fingers. You know, I mean, it'd be really gross if you drank that. That's all I'm saying. I'm more like someone's like, here, drink this. Right. And you would just ask no questions? I mean, it would greatly depend on my trust level and comfort level with the people I'm with, too. Because, I mean, you've handed me something and I'm like, okay, I'll try it. Right, but we're married. Hey, I've seen enough true crime, too. If I was going to kill you, it wouldn't be through poison. (laughs) What? Good to know. I have more respect for you than that. Aw, thanks. You're welcome. So then for whatever reason, we see John Whitney is kind of freaking out. He's at this dock and is trying to stop some shipment from going back to his museum in Chicago. And he ends up stuck on board the ship and then screams. And it's really weird. I don't know. It's a very weird cold open. So then we get to Chicago. Mm -hmm. I've never I've never been to Chicago. Yeah, I I do really want to go and I would love to go to this museum. I spent a lot of time in Chicago. Really? Mm-hmm. Doing what? Not being on base in Great Lakes. Oh, that's fair. Like, I love museums. I love history museums. And uh, art museums are fine. But, like, history museums, I just feel like are more interesting. Mm-hmm. We should go to Chicago at some point. That would be great. Yeah. Go to some museums. Go to- I would love it also if a museum had this superstition exhibit. Oh, that would be amazing. Oh, my God. That thing looked so fucking cool. Oh, yeah. I would just love that because I know like Margot's whole thing is it's not real science. And it's like, well, yeah, from an anthropology standpoint, looking at the things that people believed and why they believed them is very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I haven't been to Chicago in over 20 years, but there's there's places that if they still exist, I would love to take you there. Uh, specifically Miller's Pub. Hmm. Great we'll, food. We'll have to see. Great food. Maybe next year. Okay. So Margot is... Um, Margo is an evolutionary biologist, mm-hmm. and she's doing this whole project where she is collecting genetic data mm-hmm. for like a big, basically like a DNA database. Yeah. So where if you have some unknown DNA, you can put it into her machine and it'll be, it'll break it down and be like, okay, it's certain percentage of this and certain percentage of this or whatever. Not entirely how DNA works, but. No, it's not. But this was a. This was was in the mid-90s when we still didn't really know a whole lot about DNA. Like, in the subtitles, they have the dots between DNA still. Yeah. And they even, in the movie, are like, D-N-A. And, like, pronouncing each letter specifically. Like saying, I am an F-B-I agent. Yeah, exactly. it's DNA. But she's trying to get funding for this, and there's a, uh, what is it? A grant. grant. Yeah. A grant. And there's this other guy who's a piece of shit, Greg, Greg Lee. Greg. Fucking Greg. Who already has a grant and is 
applying for the one that she's going for, mm-hmm. even though he already has one. Yeah. Which I agree with her on this. Ethically, I don't think you should be able to apply for an additional research grant when you already have one. Mm. Especially if you're at the same facility. Yeah, that, that seems... I don't know. It it, it, it seems kind of kind of messed up where you're you're effectively saying screw you and your research and your staff. Right. I feel like it's being disrespectful to your fellow scientists mm. to be like, well, I got the money to fund my project, but you don't have the money to fund yours. But I'm going to try and take that money from you. Exactly. It. What's well, a good analogy? I have food, but I'm going to buy some more food and it's like yeah, take, it's like and take it home for myself and not offer you any. Right. Knowing you don't have any food. Oh, it's like in Squid Game when they got back in line to get more eggs. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that was just so random. That, that, was, that was a very random... <laughs> like, you had me scrambling through all of Squid Game oh, in my head good. going, wait, and you're bringing up the eggs? Really? Well, yeah, when they get back in line to get more food and then some people are like, oh, I didn't get any and the, the people running the game don't give a shit. And they're like, well, we had exactly the right amount. So somebody else fucked up. Have, have a nice day. Bye. So for a little bit of time, we've kind of got two different stories going simultaneously because we've got the stuff at the museum. Then we have the stuff with the cops. Yeah. There's a ship. There's a ship that showed up in the harbor Mm -hmm. that its entire crew is just gone. Yeah. Uh, It turns out that they're all in the bilge. Mm -hmm. Which is not a good place (laughs) to go on the best of times. No. A bunch of them have been decapitated. A lot of them, like there's a hole in the back of their head. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, I forget how DaCosta ends up at the museum. Is it from that security guard? Is that how? I believe there was like a... I'm trying to remember. Uh, it was either the security guard or also there should have been some bills of lading with the, where stuff was being taken. Yeah, there was uh, some crates that were going to the museum. Mm-hmm. So he ends up kind of connecting the dots because there is a uh, security guard at the museum mm-hmm. who has been murdered in the bathroom and has the same like his head's been basically ripped off right and his brain has been removed right so he he sees this as a completely unconnected thing until he kind of starts piecing things together then realizes hey that ship was carrying stuff that that had stuff for the museum maybe there's a connection starts kind of rolling it all together that's how it works right exactly sorry Sorry, this is what happens when we watch stuff too far in advance (laughs) i mean i've got i've got my notes (laughs) i do too but i'm like There's some stuff I didn't make notes on. So one thing that I find interesting, in one of these crates, there is a statue of this uh, Kathoga thing, Mm -hmm. which is a... Chimera? A chimeric god Mm -hmm. that this tribe worshipped, where basically they would aim it at their enemies to take out their enemies, essentially. But the weird thing is that the doctor... What is it? Dr. Frock. Yes. He makes this comment about how it was the like child of satan or a satanic god and i'm just like how does a near extinct south american tribal culture make a deal with a judeo-christian deity i love you that that you brought that up well i mean i love you too but well yeah i I love that you brought that up because in my notes my first big note other than kathoga because the rest of it i was just like yeah yeah exposition yeah um i wrote uncontacted uninfluenced tribes cannot make a pact with a judeo-christian satan right it would be like if the ancient aztecs had made a deal with loki or saturn it doesn't make sense no it it wouldn't although if we found evidence of that then we'd be like well shit i know we got a lot of stuff wrong but yeah but still i it it just it's it's very weird it's it strikes me it's presumptive and strikes me also as projective yeah like you are you're putting your own like Judeo-Christian ideals of how various deities work onto this tribal culture and it has nothing to do with that. Right. It's very weird. So then we get to the section that I of my notes that I have titled Shit Pops Off. Is this before or after the kids? Which kids? Oh, the, the kids that sneak into the museum? Yes. This is after? This is this is after. This is when the the, the security guard gets murdered. Okay. I just want to mention one thing about the kids. First of all, these scrappy kids found a great way to play hooky and get some education, but they need to go back to school and get their education because when they get locked in the museum and you know screaming for their lives, 
just before that they're worried about getting yelled at for cutting class i'm like dude the museum's closed you've more than cut class your yeah pa- your parents are probably calling the police or trying to figure out where the hell you are also not to mention the fact that like there would be exit signs in theory no like you are required to have exit signs on on buildings that for public traversal yeah no i i mean i get that yeah but there may not be exit signs if you go into the back bowels of places there would still be signs on the wall saying go this way to get here go mm. this way to get here fair i mean there was when we went to when we went to st louis when mm. we went to the history museum there there were still signs on the wall directing us various ways of go here to go to this exhibit and go here and here's the, how the gift shop is and fair yeah I'll say there are exit signs above the doors at my office at work and we have a staff of like less than 30 people. So <laughs> it's a very small building. Very well. Very well. What the fuck is that answer? Mm-hmm. I get it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So I kind of love the security guard mm-hmm. <laughs> who at the end of his day can't even wait till he gets home. Just goes to the bathroom at work and pulls a joint out of his pocket. So he's just had a joint in his pocket all day while he has greeted like elementary school students and like elderly couples that are just coming to the museum for the day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just find that highly amusing. But yeah, he gets straight up murdered. And I was so excited when I saw this next part that I had to pause the movie because I was so happy. At the crime scene... It shows D'Agosta and Hollingsworth putting on booties before they go into the crime scene. Well done. They're putting on proper protection. They almost never do. Here's the thing. They almost never do this in movies. Yeah. Because how many times have I bitched about it? Every time. Every single time. And then during the autopsy, D'Agosta is wearing a mask and a, and a thing to cover his clothes. And the autopsy is being conducted in a well-lit room. Yeah, so they can see things. That also almost never happens. I agree. I, I'm i just like so, even now, thinking back on it, I was just like so fucking happy. I'm like, everybody's properly kitted out. This is the best. <laughs> it's not even, this movie overall isn't even like amazing. But the fact that they got that right. Puts it in a special place in your heart. It really does. Yeah, I, I get that. I will say, as far as the autopsy being conducted in a well-lit room, that's probably the best-lit part of the movie. Yeah. The rest of this movie is almost as dark as Alien vs. Predator Requiem, which is really saying something, because you really have to pop up, like, you have to play with the, the contrast and stuff to be able to see what the fuck is going on. I honestly thought, because I was watching it, I was watching this on my Kindle underneath fluorescent lights. Mm-hmm. So I just assumed I was like, well, maybe it's because I'm in a bright room and there's glare. Uh, but no, you said you had the same problem. Yeah. And my work has been nice and let me not have lights over my desk. There's enough light in there. Yeah. But no, I kept try- playing with the brightness on for my tablet and kind of trying to tilt it at different angles. <sighs> Such a shame. Can I say the autopsy was also the most entertaining? That That coroner had such quick wit. I love her to death. This brain is a little light, even for a man. (laughs) That was good, but my personal favorite was seven decapitations in one week. I don't know. I don't like someone who takes head and never gives it. Yes. And I'm like, okay, yeah. They're, They're talking, they start talking about DNA more and more also at this part. Yeah, because there's this uh, weird fungus on these leaves that were in the case. Mm -hmm. Or in these shipping containers that they were sent. I think they figure out that they were basically being used as a um, packing material. Mm -hmm. At least that's what they assume. That's what they assume. But, like, there's various hormones and stuff in this fungus. It's really weird. Yeah. Also, I don't think that's really how that would work again. But I don't know. Again, DNA was new. It was kind of, you know... The the way DNA is used in this movie is kind of like how computer lingo and terminology was used in the net and in hackers, mm. you know. So you you listen to the to the specs on on the modem and hackers, and you're like, "We're gonna add a gigabyte of RAM to this." Now now that was under siege two. Yeah, I'm aware. It's still wrong. It's yeah. You, you don't <laughs> add a gigabyte of RAM to us to to us. Uh, basically, essentially a search you uh, that doesn't yeah i know that's not how that works that's not how any of this works yeah oh and lattes were new in chicago i've i've supposedly. explained this 
lattes and fancy coffee drinks did not come to the Midwest until the late 90s, early 2000s. I know you brought... Look, the only reason I bring it up is because it struck me. Like, they were like, what is this thing? This strange concoction? I'm like, you're telling me cops in Chicago in 1997 have no concept of what a latte is. Maybe they didn't. I mean, I guess not. I told you, my hometown, we didn't get our first Starbucks until after I graduated from high school. And that was in 2003. Yeah, but there was still, like, borders. Border, we and didn't other have coffee borders. Shops. We didn't have borders. <sighs> All the coffee shops were downtown. I didn't know anything about that. I didn't go downtown. So they think they found their murderer when they find a homeless man in the bowels of the museum mm. with an axe. Yeah. But the thing is, that head was clearly ripped off. Yeah, not really what you could do with an axe. Yeah, you can't. It's it's very different. But people are very quick to be like, oh, we got our guy. Yeah. You could behead someone with an axe. It's like, yeah, but it doesn't fit. But there's this fundraising party that is in a couple days. And they're like, we have to have this party. It's very important. So the mayor gets involved because he's going to go to the party and some other rich muckety mucks are going to be there. So unfortunately, instead of getting to shut shit down like Degasta wants until they can do a thorough search, he's forced to allow the party to continue. So then we get to the next section of my notes, which is called the party slash massacre. <laughs> it's the best party ever. It is so good. I found myself being like, I can't wait for Greg and Tom to get their fucking heads ripped off. Just the biggest, smuggest assholes ever. Like, as people are being murdered around them, specifically Greg is still trying to impress this rich couple who are in charge of this grant that he wants to to steal from Margot. He did everything short of offer sexual favors to either of them. Which I'm sure he would have done. They probably would have, like, if he thought they would have been down, he'd have done it. I'm just saying he was unscrupulous. Yeah, very much so. Uh, so essentially what happens is there's this there's this big party for uh, it's a museum fundraiser where they're also showcasing the new exhibit, which is all about uh, superstition. Mm-hmm. And it features various cultures. That's where they're going to display this Kathoga statue. And Kathoga, of course, decides he's going to go to the party and just starts straight up just murdering people and uh because a display gets smashed that triggers the security system Mm -hmm. to come on so everything just basically just starts shutting down yeah and i have a question about the security system sure go for it why are you asking me you work i know but here i'm trying to think that's what i'm saying i work i'm a security dispatcher i don't know how the (laughs) there's a big difference between being like a security guard and being in charge of putting in security stuff and just calling the cops, which is essentially what I do. I couldn't figure out why the sprinklers were coming on. General fire. If if general fire would be triggered, it would probably be a safety protocol. Right. But but what was triggered was the burglary system, which should be completely separate from the fire system. I know at least that much. (laughs) It's separate. Right. And I'm also curious why the backup batteries and the generators are in a totally different place from the security control room. Because for me, it would make sense for that stuff to be in the security control room. You know, like a security hub. Right. Where it would all be in one place. Because if you're on lockdown, because there's like, let's just say there's like a massive like hostage situation or something. Right. And you have the building on lockdown. You would want the people who are in the security control room to be able to stay in the security control room. Fair. If the kidnappers, whoever is holding people hostage, if they do something with the power, you wouldn't want the people that are safe in the security control room to have to leave it to get the generators and stuff on. Right. It just seemed very weird to me. It didn't really make a whole lot of sense. I think it was poorly designed, and I blame the head of security. Is that this Tom you keep referencing? Yeah, Because I just erased his name from my memory. That's, he's, he's a shithead of security. He is. That's the guy who, when Degusta is like, we, well, we don't know for a fact that this homeless guy is our killer. We need to do some more stuff first. Tom just calls the mayor. Yeah. And then stands there with like a, this smug smile on his face. Like. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Dad said we get to have the party. Meh. Yeah. He's also, as head of security, when that security guard had his head ripped off, who had worked there for six years and was beloved by any person who had ever seen him, 
Yeah. He has no recollection of this guy. Yeah, he's like, oh, I don't, I don't really know anything about him. It's like, why not? You're the head of security. You should, you know, should know about your staff, especially right. your security staff. Right, exactly. <laughs> one of the other things I will say about this movie is I, I actually really like D'Agosta. Mm-hmm. He's one of the best cops in film history. I love when, when shit starts going down. He's trying to give instruction to um, Hollingsworth and a couple other cops are with the mayor and his wife and this rich couple and mm-hmm. like Greg and Tom and, and the head of the museum up in this banquet hall. Cause they, these are the people that weren't able to get out. Right. And he's trying to tell them what to do so that they can get out safely. And the mayor's arguing with him and he's like, we should stay here and blah, 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 blah. And I'm the mayor. And D'Agosta basically says, look, I don't give a fuck if you're the mayor. And you can fire me tomorrow. You, yeah. You can fire me when you're safe. But for now, you need to shut the fuck up and do what I'm telling you to do, because this is how you're going to get out of here safely. Yeah. Go on. Get off your high horse. Right. Exactly. It's like with pride will die in Chicago. Well, it's like, (laughs) like, yeah, you're the mayor, but there you need to. I understand when people there are people that they like get very hooked into their position of power. Mm -hmm. But just because you are the head of one thing Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you know what's best for something else. Right. Does that make sense? You could have a master chef that that can cook fantastic cuisine. I don't want them operating on my heart. Right. Like having having a doctoral degree in literature. Mm-hmm. Like I'm a doctor of literature. Okay. That doesn't mean you're a doctor of everything. Oh, I've talked to plenty of them. Same. <laughs> it's like you're, you're a cardiologist. Okay. So you know a lot about the heart. That means you don't know fuck all about my uterus. Go away. Yeah. I'm also really glad this movie does not have a romantic subplot. That is refreshing. I feel like it would have been so easy for them to try and shoehorn Green and, Green and D'Agosta. Yeah. But they they don't. Not only that, but he is actually fairly respectful of her. Yeah, he, he's, he's a little rough around the edges at first, but he's introduced already having a shit day. Yeah, because he's getting a divorce. His wife got the dog in the divorce. So he's just kind of in a grumpy mood in general, but he fully acknowledges, I don't know anything about biology or anything like this. So he recognizes that she knows more than him and accepts her opinion. And while he thinks that's a little far-fetched or a little weird, he's like, well, you've got scientific evidence, so I guess you're correct. And we're going to go with your thing. Right. You've got machines that go bing. Yeah. Because she does eventually uh, figure out that the fungus that's on the these leaves mm-hmm. has a lot of hormones in it, and it basically does like a rapid acceleration, sort of weird evolution mm-hmm. that she's able to figure out that essentially the whole Kathoga thing was a member of the tribe or an animal or something that would be selected, fed this fungus so that it would turn into this Kathoga thing. And then it would be let loose on this tribe's enemies. Yeah. And uh, they would essentially stop feeding it the fungus, which has the hormones it needs to survive. And it would go and kill these people because then it would rip out the uh, the hypothalamus. Yeah. Human hypothalamus. Yeah. Which in one scene is said seven times. Yeah. It's it's quite amusing. You don't even need a supercut. You just need to find that spot and just play it on a loop. It's great. Yeah, which is why the why Kathoga is ripping off people's heads and taking out their brains. It's taking their hypothalamus. Of course, the the human hypothalamus has much lower concentrations of all of these uh, hormones than the fungus does. So right. it needs a lot of them. Brains. Yeah. Well, parts of it anyway. But it's like. The way she describes it when she does the uh, the breakdown of the actual genetics of the thing, it's like it's part lizard, part arachnid, part fish. It's just this amalgam of things. And they end up also figuring out that the thing is John Whitney. Yeah, because they sequence uh, human. Yeah, she's able to sequence out that there's human DNA in it. And then somehow specifically, uh, oh, from a, from a blood drive. Yeah. They, she's able to figure out that it's his DNA. Granted, again, that's not, not how DNA works necessarily. But quite impressive. But it is still impressive from a storytelling standpoint. So yeah, I, I my question is because it's made very clear that the tribe, this the 
drink that they gave him is what had this fungus. It had this fungus in it. Because mm-hmm. you see them making it in the beginning right. in that cold open. You see the leaves with like the orange fungus that looks kind of like Masago. <laughs> yeah. And my question is, do you think that they infected him on purpose, knowing he would go back to the States because they see us as the enemy? Or were they doing him an honor by saying, would you fight for us? It can be both. Possibly. He was basically an invader to the, or could have been perceived as an invader to their previously uncontacted culture. And we would be seen as the enemy. I mean, deforestation and Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I didn't expect this to turn fern gully, but it uh, (laughs) it kind of... Sorry, I'm a millennial. Things will always... Things, things always go to Ferngully. Things could apparently. always be linked back to Ferngully and saving the rainforest. <laughs> do you have any other thoughts about this particular movie? Yes, I do. Go for it. Well, I have one note here and I have no fucking clue what it means, so please. Okay. With our brains combined, help me figure out this note. All right, hold on. Let me get into think, think mode. Think mode activated and go. Kathoga, in your eyes is a devil god. No, just, yeah, no. I don't know what that means, but you said in your eyes and my brain instantly went Peter Gabriel. Exactly. <laughs> I, I don't know what that means, but I wrote it down. Uh, when they're evacuating the rich mucky mucks and the mayor and basically it's the idiot march. Hollingsworth tells him, hey, follow me. Go slow. Be quiet. Yeah. You know, it, it's dark and they basically have to go through uh, an access tunnel, basically a sewer. As soon as they start filing through. They start shouting and everybody's stomping loudly. I'm like, this is not going slow and being quiet. No, it's really not. So at that moment, I was like, all right, so most of y'all are dead. Yeah. Well, because the rich muckety-mucks didn't go. Yeah. Because Tom and Greg and the... Their name starts with a B. I don't remember what it is. Like Billingsworth? Billionaires. Yeah. They decided they didn't want to go. I think one of them, their leg was actually hurt. So they're like, I can't go. Right, right. They Um, all end up dead anyway, so it's fine. So is that all, all you had on this? Because I've yeah, got two no. fantastic things. Oh. oh, yeah, go for it. I found the monster actually kind of disappointing when it did a full body reveal. Like, it was fine in pieces. Yeah. But full body reveals for monsters really worry me because usually it doesn't always work. That's fair. I can see that. Like, from the edges, from the from parts of it, like, there's, there's fear and mystery and, and suspense. But then when you just kind of see the whole thing, you're just like, oh, oh, well, shit. We could just... Go behind this door and close it and you won't fit. Okay, we'll do yeah. that. This film did a great job of showing that science can be cool. Yeah. Especially with Dr. Green's patented science bomb. Oh my god, yes. Because she just goes... She just is trying to find like all this... Because she's... She, she basically takes a small beaker, pours... Various and, things uh, into it. Well, she what she did was she put a smaller beaker inside a larger one. So there was a... A glass wall between them so that she could prepare a chemical reaction. She put one agent in one, one agent in the outer, closed the it lid up. on. And then so that when she threw it and the glass shattered, it would cause a chemical reaction. Correct. Basically cause an explosion. It was really cool. And like, I knew exactly what she was doing. As soon as I saw her doing the, the container in a container, I'm like, she's making an explosive. Yeah. You know, it's like epoxy. You can't have the two parts together without it turning into glue. Well, this is like fire epoxy. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it to folks that don't get it. So It's kind of like you have the resin and then the hardener. Well, yeah, no, I, I understand mix... how to explain epoxy. Yeah. I'm just saying. I know you understand. I was continuing the oh, yeah, 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 yeah. analogy for the people listening at home. Right, the... but it's not glue. It's fire. Right. Well, I know they know that. Okay. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm just. Well, not epoxy. Epoxy's not fire. That's an adhesive. But anyway. <laughs> Let's move on. It just got toasty in there and. Yeah. It was it was nice. It was pretty cool. All right, so let's move on to our next film. Mm-hmm. This one was also released originally in 1997. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, we used the director's cut, which is from 2011, and we will explain why. Uh, but the next film we're talking about is Mimic. Yes. When a new disease starts killing hundreds of children in New York, the CDC calls on Susan Tyler, an entomologist, to devise a plan for wiping out the cockroaches spreading the disease. Against the advice of her mentor, she bioengineers the Judas breed. It was supposed to die out within weeks, but three years later, a bizarre series of murders leads Susan to discover that her little experiment didn't just survive, it evolved. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. All right. 
directed by Guillermo del Toro. Mm-hmm. He's watching me as I talk about his good, good film. It's a Funko Pop. I have a Guillermo del Toro Funko Pop that David got me. Yep. He's hanging out with Cthulhu and Kurt Cobain. So. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that alignment there. Gurr's back there, too. Yeah, Gurr's up there. Anyway. <laughs> Screenplay by Matthew Robbins and Del Toro, based on a short story by Donald A. Wolheim. Mm-hmm. The cast, Mira Sorvino is Dr. Susan Tyler. She most recently was Marsha Lewis on American Crime Story Impeachment. Mm-hmm. Jeremy Northam is Dr. Peter Mann. He was Anthony Eden on The Crown. Josh Brolin is Josh Maslow. He was Thanos in the MCU. Even more recently, he was Gurney Halleck in Dune. Oh, he's also Cable. He was also Cable in Deadpool 2. Mm-hmm. Josh Brolin's been in a lot of stuff. Yes. Charles S. Dutton is Officer Leonard Norton. We mentioned him previously in an episode when we covered the Alien franchise because he's Dylan in Alien 3. Yep. He's also Sheriff Ozzy Walls in A Time to Kill. Mm-hmm. Uh, Giancarlo Giannini is Manny Gaviola. He was Pazzi in Hannibal. Also recently played Renee Mathis in the Bond franchise. Cool. Alexander Goodwin is Chewy Gaviola. I couldn't find anything else really that he had done. Mm-hmm. F. Murray Abraham is Dr. Walter Gates, previously mentioned as uh, playing Cyrus Criticos in 13 Ghosts. Yes. And then we have Alex Koromzi as Remy. Norman Reedus. And one of his first ever films as Jeremy. Barely recognized him, but he had a great life. He's such a a cute little baby face Norman Reedus. I love it so much. And then, of course, because it is a Guillermo del Toro film, Doug Jones is in it. Yes. As uh, Long John Number 2 is what what the role is called. Long John? That's either a donut or a full body pair of underwear. Well, because that's apparently from uh, what I was able to gather, that's the urban legendy type name that the uh, people, the homeless people who live in this, the subway have mm-hmm. given this creature that's been killing people. Right. I like what Chewie calls him. Mr. Funny Shoes. Mr. Funny Shoes. Yeah. So I do have a couple pieces of trivia. Okay. Most of them are in regards to studio meddling. Mm. It's a studio meddling medley. Yeah. So Guillermo del Toro originally wanted Andre Brower mm-hmm. to play the role of, of P- Dr. Peter Mann. Right. Because he liked the idea of the ending showing a Caucasian woman, a black man, and a Latino child coming together as symbolism of the future of mankind coming together. Right. Unfortunately, this particular film was um, being financed by Miramax. Mm-hmm. Which anyone who knows anything about Miramax knows that that means the Weinsteins. Yeah. And apparently the Weinsteins vetoed this idea because they believed America wasn't ready for an interracial family in 1997. Mm-hmm. Now, I have got to say, this film had one of the worst productions I've read about since Alien 3. I was going to say... If Yeah, as far as like studio meddling goes, this one is bad. So Mimic was not Guillermo del Toro's first film. No. By any stretch of the imagination. Not at all. And he is very precise about like camera positioning and shots and lighting and and very, very much like storyboards his movies and is very, is very particular about how things go. Mm -hmm. And apparently Bob Weinstein would just show up on set with these complaints about how the movie wasn't scary enough and basically telling Guillermo del Toro how to do his job. And it actually ended up getting so bad that he threatened to fire del Toro. Fuck. Yeah. So Mira Sorvino stepped in and said that she would quit. She basically told the Weinsteins, if you don't fuck off and let him do his job and let him you know, create his vision for this film, I'm done. I'm leaving. And at the time, she was dating Quentin Tarantino, who had done several films with, a couple, Miramax, with Miramax and was also, from what I understand, or what I could glean, was also kind of like, if she's not going to work with you, I'm not going to work with you. Yeah. So Tarantino backed her up. And while the Weinsteins did let Del Toro finish the film, 
they insisted on having control over the final cut. So the original release of the film from 1997 had a lot of shots that had been done with a second unit crew, which Del Toro disliked because they weren't consistent with his use of color and his camera setups. They just didn't, it was very disjointed looking. Yeah. So the post-production influence was so heavy that this film is actually on a list that The Telegraph did in 2017 entitled Harvey Scissorhands, Six Films Ruined by Harvey Weinstein. Hmm. So it it was so bad that once it was released, Del Toro actually disowned the film. Hmm. And in 2011, he was able to get a hold of all of his original footage and re-edited it into the director's cut, which is what we used. Nice. And the director's cut is closer to his original vision. And part of the reason he wanted to do that is because he wanted to give people a a chance to watch something that was close to what he had originally intended. That way, if they're still unhappy with it, quote, at least I am entirely to blame. I love that dude to death for that. I know. I mean, that's that's it takes me back to, you know, one of the things that is a is a comfort for me is watching things like cooking competitions where it's like I don't want to lose because I didn't get to get to finish on time. I want to lose because because you were better was, than me. Yeah. yeah. Or you know if if I if I'm gonna win or lose, it's gonna be because I did it. Not, yeah. Not because of a technicality or someone used my custard and I had to use theirs. And yeah, that's one of the things I really appreciate about about Bake Off. Yeah. Is the the bakers want to win on their own merit? They don't want to win because somebody else fucked up. Yeah, and there's no like sabotage. Right. Exactly. None of that bullshit that you get on American cookie shows where they're like, well, I wasn't going to make an ice cream, but now so-and-so is, so I'm going to do it so they can't. So yeah, because of his experience, Guillermo del Toro never worked with Miramax again. I don't blame him. Which again, yeah, I don't blame him. And I'm honestly thinking this is probably one of the movies that ended up with uh, Mira Sorvino being blacklisted. Is because she had the tena- she had the tenacity to stick up to the Weinsteins and be like, y'all need to cut this shit out. Granted, she was also sexually harassed by them, but... Yeah. So let's get into the film itself. Yay! We've talked about this film briefly before. There's this thing called Strickland's Disease that's wiping out all the children in New York. Mm-hmm. And the CDC calls in Susan to figure out... Because they, they figure out it's being spread by cockroaches. Yeah, because they determine it wasn't in the water. It wasn't in the air. It's only impacting children. The predominant uh, symptom is labored breathing. Yeah. But that labored breathing is so, I mean, it's like severely labored breathing to the point where it's taxing the body so much that a lot of children are dying. They show her, because Dr. Peter is taking her through like a, a critical care unit and you see a couple of kids and they're just like, like breathing very quickly. And, and like chest, I mean, it's a very muscular chest heaving rapid breathing just trying to get enough oxygen yeah it's it does not look pleasant at all no so she ends up creating this new breed of like it's mantis plus termite thing called the judas breed that uh when introduced to a cockroach population secretes this enzyme that the cockroaches then ingest that rapidly speeds up their metabolism and causes them to starve to death basically because they're they're not able to eat fast enough to they're burning calories faster than they can eat right so it's the design was to basically say okay the only way we can effectively get this is at their food source yeah and this is the this is the best way to do it yeah and it does work and she designed the judas to a be sterile and b naturally die out after a few weeks right Flash forward, it's three years later, and Peter and Susan are now married. They're living together in New York. He's still, of course, with the CDC, and she's doing her bug thing. Before we fast forward to the three years later, there is, um, it's showing them, like, right after everything was successful. He's watching something. She's in the bathroom. There's, like, a full tub, but she's also in a negligee. It's really weird. But, like, they get in the tub with -hmm. their clothes on. And he's getting water all over the floor. And I just, it's one of the things that happens in movies. There there are romantic scenes where people get into a tub or a shower or something with their clothes on. And I don't understand why. It's a weird trope. It, it, is, it is weird. And that I don't understand. 
I mean, like, I freak out if I get a little water outside of the shower, let alone splashing a whole body's worth of water. That's on... bad for the floor. It's bad for the floor. Not only that, but I mean... This is an apartment complex in New York. There's so... definitely people live under you. So what? Does the downstairs neighbor just have a big wet spot? On their ceiling? On their ceiling? Probably. Look, don't force your wet spot on neighbors. That's all I'm saying. David! What? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't think about it that way. Oh, you didn't? No. I assumed you did that shit on purpose. No. I was just, well, we've had neighbors that made stupid things. Yeah, there was an, I don't remember what they were doing, but there was a leak in our bathroom where water was coming out the light switch. <laughs> yeah, that was not cool. That was not okay. I don't even remember what the fuck he was doing. But there's another trope in this movie that they do that I really wish Hollywood in general would stop doing. And that is people eating at crime scenes. Yeah. Because there's this, um, I don't remember exactly where it is. It's on the Lower East Side. Mm -hmm. And because there's a suspicion of yellow fever, the CDC shows up. So Peter and his cohort, Josh, have to go investigate. There's also some other weird shit. But like, there's also a dead body, from what I understand. And Josh is just sitting at the crime scene on the steps eating pistachios. And it's not like they're already shelled. Like, just the nuts? No, he's, like, shelling pistachios at a crime scene and just throwing the shells on the ground. And I'm like, I get the whole cops having a cup of coffee at a crime scene, but to be shelling pistachios... I mean, it is a great source of nutrients, It is, but you don't... Not at a crime scene. Have your fast break outside of the crime scene. Yeah, seriously. So I'm not exactly sure where... Does Susan work at a museum? Is that what we determined? It's been a couple weeks since we watched these. I wrote museum in my notes, so she must work at a museum. Okay. No, because we get these these two kids. Oh, I love those kids. These two enterprising young children that show up with like a cornflake box of different bugs and stuff because they go to the museum to talk to the bug lady. So because they know that she buys she buys different specimens from people. Yeah. So so they're like five bucks. I just like, I like the idea of these enterprising kids who go out and collect butterflies to sell to the museum. I just think that's kind of adorable. It is. And, and like her colleague, Remy, is like, oh, you shouldn't inter- encourage them. And Susan makes a good point. She's like, well, they could be selling worse things. So yeah. she's like, I'd much rather they be doing this. I mean, it does suck because they do end up dying because they're trying to find her additional stuff in the subway. They're disused parts of the subway, but still. Yeah, I wrote a note here that said, uh, damn, I like those kids. I know! They were warned. Wait a minute. Okay. Uh, Sorry, I've got a note for our wrap-up now. Okay, cool. So then, of course, we get, you know, shit pops off. Chewie disappears. We've got people that are being murdered. I think there's some sort of... Oh, the weird bug. Yeah. The kids, they're, they're like, oh, we've got this one bug that's really weird. And... Mr. Funny Shoes ends up breaking into her office to steal it back. Yeah, that that's it, that that's a, that was a weird turn. Well, because really, if you think about it, it's a baby. Yeah, because she even says, "Oh, it's just a baby." Yeah, because of how underdeveloped it is. So yeah, of course he would come get it back. Fair. I was really hoping it was going to be like ten cockroaches standing on each other's shoulders wearing a coat. No, it's just it's it's evolved. That's what we end up discovering is that um, because of the increased metabolism from this enzyme and because of the way that just bugs breed faster, they're able to evolve faster, which is really weird and not really. Well, well, the way they explained it was like for, for us to have a mutation that that impacts how we exist, it could take hundreds of years. Right. Because every generation, you know, it's a, a little step more. Right. Well, their whole breeding and life cycle was already fast and their with their increased metabolism that with the Judas breed teleported them into the future because Yeah, because essentially the Judas breed were able to crossbreed with the cockroaches and create a whole new like twenty thousand generations in, right, the, in the course exactly. of three years. And so yeah. You evolve to be able to you evolve to counter your predator. Counter your predator and better go after your prey. Mm-hmm. That's us. Yeah. That's humans. I I mean, I feel like this is why you don't genetically engineer bugs and stuff. Although apparently in the original story, the Judas breed is just a result, a natural result of evolution. Oh. And not engineering. Okay. Guess who made Del Toro change that? 
hmm. in the story. The production company? Bob I'm, and Harvey made him change it. I'm not even going to say their names anymore. I don't give them power. I'm not giving them power. I'm talking shit about them. <laughs> no. One thought I have is uh, if it's the enzyme that the Judas breed secretes that kills the roaches, why not just collect that enzyme in a lab and then set traps with it in the sewer? Hmm. Instead of the whole... Instead of releasing the, the Judas breed into the sewer, because then you take away your control. You, t- you take away your control and you... Yeah, because then you don't have it run any risk of it running away and what happened and- What happened happening. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Good point. Because what, what seems to happen when she, they... Uh, at the beginning of the movie, when she they show her releasing the Judas breed, is it secretes this thing when it comes into contact with cockroaches. So, like, it seems like that would be very easy to replicate. Probably. And then you could just make a make a pesticide out of the enzyme or something. I don't know. That's just my thought. I like your theory. Thank you. It's worth, it's worth field testing. Well, it would be if this were real, but it's not. That just, we know of. Just remember, the world is a much bigger lab. Yeah, that's, that's a fair. Quote. Is that F. Murray Abraham that says that? Yeah, he said you made this in a lab. Well, the world's a much yeah, bigger lab. <laughs> exactly. You don't have control outside of the lab. One thing I appreciate about filmmakers like Guillermo del Toro, mm-hmm. he's not afraid to kill kids. Out of context, that sounds no, rough, but you but yeah. you get what I'm saying oh, though. Yeah, like yeah, there's yeah. there's there's movies and video games do this also, where they're like they'll make it so that you you can't, when otherwise there'd be no reason why they wouldn't be dying the same as the adults. Exactly. I feel like uh, Ari Aster and Andy Muschietti are in that same place. Mm-hmm. Where they don't do it on purpose to try and, like, up the stakes or anything. It's just, that's how reality is. Sometimes kids die. Yeah. That's just a thing. So let's move on towards the end. Or the section of my notes I have titled Down in the Depths. Nice. It doesn't seem accurate to me that the NYPD would make Manny wait 48 hours before they start looking for a missing child. Especially a missing special needs child. Well, I know... It, I mean, it varies from state to state and jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but I believe a, I want to say it was a federal law. I could be wrong. It could be a state thing, uh, was passed within the last 10 years. It mm-hmm. said you no longer have to wait 24 hours to file a missing person report if they're under the age of yeah 18. I think then it was revised again to expand out to anybody. Yeah, because Chewy, Chewy is autistic. Mm-hmm. And he's, what, nine? Nine or ten? Eleven at the oldest? Maybe. But, like, I feel like if a ten-year-old has gone missing, I shouldn't have to wait 48 hours for you to for you to want to look for him. No, and I especially shouldn't have to wait 48 hours for you to go looking for him if it is, if, if my special needs ten-year-old has gone missing. Fair. I mean, there's an entire show based off of the first 48 hours well, being so important. The first you know? 48 hours after a murder. Right. But you could also count an abduction in that because you don't know what happened between the time they disappeared and the time. Well, because you... there's that whole statistic that if a child goes missing, if they're not found within a certain period of time, then you're probably not going to either find them at all or you're not going to find them alive. Yeah. I don't remember what that was. It's either 72, 48. It's 48 to 72 hours. See, there we go. I just said it backwards. Exactly. But Manny is such a good dad. Yeah. He goes down into the sewers with nothing but a lighter, a straight razor, and a rosary. Yeah. He's just such a... He's so sweet. He just loves that kid so much. Yeah. I I don't know. It's, it's very sweet. So we've also got this thing where Peter, Josh, and... What's his name? Oh, the transportation cop? Uh, Yeah. Leonard are trying to find I don't even remember what it is they're trying to find. They're trying to find the male because if they kill the male Well this that's later. Oh that's later. This is when they're looking for um Chewy. No. No. It's something to do with the the disease. Because Susan has figured out that they need to get lower into the sewers and look for, like, the nests and stuff. Oh, yeah. So she could get... Uh, so she could get samples so she could figure out how to fix her mistake. Right. And that's what got the kids killed. Yeah. So Peter and Josh go down there and Leonard has to go with them because they need a, a transit authority guy to kind of help them figure out where they're going. Right. I don't understand. They had those glow sticks. I don't understand why they didn't just leave a path of glow sticks 
to find their way back just in case. Because what what happens is there's this old scaffolding that falls while Peter and Leonard are on it. So Josh has to go back the way they came to get help. And he doesn't really, of course, he gets lost. Right. Because there was no real path. But because the assumption was that Leonard was going to lead them back. Right. I just don't understand why they didn't. Send Leonard. S- well, they Everybody stay put and send Leonard. They couldn't send Leonard because he was down at the bottom of the thing. Oh, right. I, I don't know. Do you think the Judas breed know that Susan made them? I mean, that's that's assuming a level of intelligence and... Well, here because here's the thing. I'm just going to call it Long John, the one that... Yeah, yeah. Long John is able to open the window and sneak around her office while she's still in it to rescue that baby Judas breed and then sneak out again. So that shows me a certain level of intelligence is, is held already. Right. So I'm just curious if if they know that she made them and that's why they don't kill her right away. Because they have several opportunities to kill her. And it's shown that, you know, we are their prey. So do you think I'm I'm just I don't know. I'm spitting theories here and because that's just how I am. But like it's something I hadn't thought about previously. Yeah, that just blew a hole in my brain. I had not thought about that. Uh, uh, that whole bit there. Like and choosing to let her live as a mark of respect because they wouldn't exist without her. Well, no, we can't kill the creator one, but we can kill everybody else. Yeah. I. Wow. Holy. Sorry. It's like if you walked into a building and God was standing there. It's like, I'm just gonna take the baby out. I'll be out of your way in a second. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I. These are the things that I think about. <laughs> Meanwhile, I've got note, like, did he just tap the pregnancy test pee part on his forehead and you're doing these like... Oh, no, don't get it twisted. I do have other weird notes like, Josh Brolin is so cute in this movie. Too bad he's about to die. (laughs) Fair. Because, yeah, Josh Brolin's really cute in this movie. (laughs) So eventually we end up with all of our main characters stuck in the fucking sewer. Mm -hmm. Not sewer. It's like disused subway tunnels. Yeah. And uh, I love that... Susan is able to kind of like science the shit out of stuff. Oh, yeah. It's another situation that this movie and this Mimic and Relic both have situations where the the smart person actually gets listened to. Oh, with the scent glands? Yeah. Which then it like it. Okay, so they're 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 holed up in a disused sub subway car. Yeah. And all of a sudden these giant fucking killer cockroaches are yeah the judas breeds start attacking and they're like oh shit and she there's like part of a or most of a dead one that they killed somehow in there with them and she's like the scent glands but then they start now a gland usually is like a certain point not just any old piece of something like you can't cut my finger off and be like you know here's this human hippocampus you know yeah it's 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 a place yeah well and i think it's really that they're using not just the scent glands but other other parts to make them smell like the the thing Mm -hmm. because really what they're trying to do is cover up the smell of leonard's blood because his leg is hurt right so they're just trying to spread enough of the smell of a judas breed around the car that they think that and on themselves yeah that they're like oh you're just more of us right I'm not sure exactly how that... I'm not sure if that would work 100%. I don't know, but in that scene, I gotta hand it to Charles S. Dutton for having the best line in the movie. Oh shit, they're everywhere! Yeah. (laughs) Like, yeah, dude. Of course they are. Movies like this have this moment that I call the belly of the beast moment, Mm -hmm. where one or more of the protagonists find themselves in a room full of either the sleeping creature or egg sacs of the creature or both. Sort of like that whole facehugger egg scene. In in Aliens, Aliens. yeah. 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 It's like that. And I kind of love that because there's, it's one of those things where it usually slowly dawns on them how perpetually fucked they could be. So I love that when Peter, he gets into this room that he thinks is totally safe because he's locked the door And there's a bunch of Judas breed on the other side of the door trying to get in. And then he kind of turns around and there's like hundreds of them hanging from the ceiling asleep. And there's egg sacs everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like the way that the camera just kind of pulls out. Mm -hmm. And it's just such a good moment because 
you think, oh, fuck, at the same moment he thinks, oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> and I just love that. And he does some pretty quick thinking of his own, too. To... Yeah, he, so there's a gas line in this room that he basically starts. I mean, it's a massive room. It's a massive room. But he starts poking holes in the gas line to release the gas and get just wrecking shit up in here. So he's got a lighter, but the lighter won't spark for whatever reason. And so he just kind of ends up rubbing this metal. Like striking the, the this metal uh, halogen tool against uh, against the, the floor yeah, grate. to try and make a spark. Here's my thing. How does he survive that? Because well, he drops down in the water. Right, but how does he survive long enough to... He's at the point of ignition. Wouldn't it start from where... Once the spark, wouldn't it, the ignition start near where he is? I don't know. I, would I just don't know how he had time to dive into the water. I don't know without going back to that scene. Okay. I just don't, I'm not sure. This is a brain buster moment for me. Because, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Um, hashtag I'm sorry. No hashtags. It was a great. Okay. Didn't he go through a... Wait, no. Because was... he lifted up the grate to try and retrieve the lighter and realized it had gone down in the so, water. So that was already open. Mm -hmm. So as he was striking another space, he dove in. So as soon as it sparked, he dove in. That's how he survived it. Okay. That's... And that's the poorly remembered play-by-play -play of sure. that scene. Sure. <laughs> Do we need to change no. the premise of this to... No. Tia and David vaguely recall? <laughs> no. We're good. So yeah, we do end up with uh, the colony and all the all the Judas breed being destroyed. I kind of wish that Guillermo del Toro had been allowed to shoot the alternate ending, mm -hmm. so that it could have been added to the director's cut. Just because I fucking love downer endings. Yeah. So the original ending, we still have like Peter and Susan and Chewie all kind of hugging at the end, mm -hmm. but then Chewie starts to hear that clickety clack. Yeah. That the Judas breed made and he can't tell where it's coming from and starts scanning the crowd. And it's meant to signify that the Judas breed, some of them have already evolved to the point that they can hide amongst humans. Yeah. Clickety clack. You ain't coming back. Yeah. Did you have any final thoughts regarding this film? The shuffling of paper. Um... Or, you know, fuck it. In general, do you have any final thoughts? They're the same movie. In a way. In in a way. Okay. That's so, why. Hey, hey, David. Yeah. That's why I picked the movies that I did because they were similar. They, they are similar. <laughs> um, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Both of them have <laughs> the very show. strong, you know, strong female characters uh, that don't back down. Yeah. That get listened to, that are correct. Mm-hmm. Both movies have a, a pair of kids that get killed on. In, well, the kids in Relic don't die. They don't. Nope. Oh. They show them later being picked up by their parents. Oh, okay. It's a blink and you'll miss it scene. I mean, all in all, I'd say they're both fun. I will say that I prefer Mimic. And I highly recommend going with the uh, director's cut. Director's cut was a good call. If, if nothing else, out of respect for Guillermo del Toro, he's such a great filmmaker. And yeah. it's such a great storyteller that I feel... I feel like you almost have to watch the, the director's cut because that's the closest thing to the film he actually intended to make. Yeah. You know, I, I would say that both films also showed that taking a beat and using your knowledge, your skills, science, instead of just guns blazing, because they even demonstrate a couple times, guns blazing does not work yeah. for either of these movies. No. Going full aggro does not work. R.I.P. Castor and Pollux. Oh. Yeah. They were both good, good boys. Good, good boys. I think Pollux is fine. One of the dogs is fine. Can't count on the other one being fine. The other one is definitely dead. Yeah. Anyway, I think that's going to do it for us this week. As always, you can find us online through our socials on our website. We are h2horrorcast.com. You can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, uh, blog posts, episode links, all kinds of stuff. There's also a link to our Patreon. Mm -hmm. We are patreon.com slash h2horrorcast. You can support us financially for as little as a dollar a month. That dollar goes towards helping to pay for streaming services, movie rentals, new equipment, things of that nature it would just help us a lot. Current patrons, shout out Liz, Lizzie, Gray, and Mom. Y'all are the best. David just dabbed. <laughs> 
it was the slowest dab. It was the slowest dab. If you cannot support us via Patreon, we totally get it. You can also support us by giving us a review or a rating on whatever listening platforms allow it. We are up to like nine reviews on Apple Podcast. We have more ratings where people just like clicked on the stars. But as far as like written reviews, we have, I think, nine last time I checked. Awesome. But you can also do like ratings through Spotify, Audible, various other platforms. All right. And that is going to do it. Yay. It's hot. I want to turn the air conditioning back on. I want food. That too. Let's go make chili. Okay. Until next time, I'm Tia. And I'm David. And thank you. That's not your sign off. No. Well, because you said thank you and I was thinking, I love you. Oh. <laughs> like we're getting off the phone or something. Look, it's been a long three weeks. Let's do this. Let's try this again. Okay. I'm Tia. And I'm still David. <laughs> and stay spooky, friends. Bye. Music for this episode is Save Us Now by Shane Ivers. Our artwork is by Catherine Nixon.